0: Hey, you look good this morning, most of you, just kidding, we'll be in Ephesians 4 in just a moment, if you are new here, we are in a, um, in a year-long series working through the letters written to the church in the New Testament, so that's the title of the, uh, the series, it's real catchy and creative, Letters to the Church. Um, But uh, not only does that tell us what we're actually reading, but it puts us in a position as a church then to place ourselves underneath the microscope of God's word. And so uh, that we are doing week by week uh, in several different um, venues, one in here on Sunday mornings. We also have during the second service an adult Bible study um, that is about a week ahead in the scriptures, working on the background work, and then they come in. Uh, the week later to to hear the sermon on it, but also our life groups are meeting a couple times a month to talk about life application out of these same verses that we are learning and and preaching on Sunday morning. So um, that's the series we're in. We're in the book of Ephesians. We've made it to chapter four. Um, We've already been in chapter four for three weeks. We've got two weeks left before we get to chapter five. And so where we've been over the last three weeks um, is is this. Paul starts off in the application part of the letter, the practical part of the letter, uh, talking about how theology shapes and governs the church. And so we've spent the last three weeks talking about church. We've been talking about our unity and about spiritual growth and leadership and membership. And so today, the second half of chapter four is going to begin to shift to talk more about our personal individual growth and what that looks like. And so I hope by the end of the sermon today, by the time we get to verse 23 in Ephesians 4, we've, got, we've made our way to some real practical help on how we participate in our spiritual growth, okay? And so uh, just as we, as we get started in Ephesians 4, we'll be in, in verse 17 in just a minute. Let me just do an overview of the life cycle when you use spiritual growth, what we mean in the most simple terms. So what we mean is um, a person who goes from not saved, not knowing God, without hope, okay, from here to now saved with hope in a relationship with God to a place of baptism where that faith is expressed publicly uh, before the church and then connected in community, the community of the church, and then moved to a place of serving on mission, now leading people who are not saved to be saved. And you can see that life cycle just repeated over and over and over again since the first disciples who followed Jesus. And so when we talk about spiritual growth, that's what we're talking about. How do we, as a church, how do we as individuals even go from not saved to saved to a place of commitment and obedience to Jesus and public baptism to a place where we're ready to get connected with the community that is the church, a place to be known and to know and to hold accountable and to encourage and to receive correction, to receive all that is needed to grow to a place where we're ready to serve Ready to be on mission. We're ready to be on mission in our work. We're ready to be on mission in our daily lives. We're ready to be on mission on our way to the gas station, at the coffee shop, in the Philippines. So, so today when we talk about spiritual growth, that's what we're talking about. How can we participate in our own individual spiritual growth to begin moving towards maturity? So, Paul shifts in verse 17. Let's read 17 through 24. He begins with these words, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of their heart, or the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have learned about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So that's where we're going to be this morning as we begin this conversation on spiritual growth as an individual. Now, so, so last week, one of the things we saw that as a church, if we're going to grow, we have to all grow together. And our spiritual growth as a church is fueled by our knowledge of Jesus. So you can think of it this way. My relationship with Jesus is fueled by my knowledge of Jesus. If I don't continue to grow in my knowledge of who he is, I will stagnate. I will plateau in my relationship with him. It's always a valid question to ask ourselves when we get to a place where maybe we feel like our prayers are hitting the ceiling or our spiritual growth has kind of planed out or is declining. We're not just feeling it. We need to ask ourselves, am I growing in my knowledge of Jesus? Well, how do I do that? Well, I I read the beautiful testimony of Jesus. I read all that was taught about Jesus, all that was taught by Jesus. And I grow in my knowledge of who he is and my relationship therefore can grow. So my knowledge of Jesus fuels my relationship with Jesus. We saw that Corporately, now we're going to see that applied individually as well. Now, what we're going to talk about today, um, you, might, you might use the terms walking by faith to, to illustrate what we're talking about. And, and the reason we use those words is, is for this reason. Most of what's described in our spiritual growth in the New Testament is in a is in sense of being passive. It's something that happens to us. Something God does to us. Something his word does to us. Something the Holy Spirit does in us. However, we get, to, we get to parts where it seems like God is now inviting us or actually commanding us through imperative commands to participate in what he's doing. So, so we get this picture that a lot of it's passive. I'm his worksmanship. I'm in his hands. I'm on the anvil, and he's the one shaping me, conforming me into the name of Jesus. But then we get to certain parts that say, wait, wait, wait. You have a part as well. It's not either or. It's a both and. And so we see this beautiful call to walk by faith. Just a couple of things that I want to point out as we get, get started here. So, faith then, if true faith, right, true faith invokes obedience. True faith invokes, causes, obedience. And here's why I want us to start here. Two things. Faith without obedience is simply wishful thinking, fluffy theology, a coping mechanism, or a projected identity facade. Faith with no actions, James will say, is dead. Does nothing for us. It's just some fluffy version of Christianity. It's a softer version of Jesus. If I'm not compelled to do something for him because of my faith, it's really not faith. It's just maybe wishful thinking. Okay. Now that's faith without works. However, obedience without faith, obedience without faith then Leads to self-righteousness, moral deism, and performance-based religion. I am as close to God as I work at. If I want to be close to God, I have to work hard. I have to become more obedient. I have to impress him morally. I have to perform so others will see how close I am to God. Now, either way, faith without works or works without faith both end in a sense of self being the main attraction, okay? And so true Christianity, faith that generates works, Jesus is the main attraction. You think about it, if it's just about my faith and what I believe, but I'm not putting any actions into it, I'm really just wanting you to believe something about me, right? I just wanna be recognized as a person of faith, or I want you to think of me as a person. I'm not willing to put any action out there, but I'm projecting that I believe something. Really, I'm just projecting an identity, and so I'm really the main attraction, of what I believe. Now, the other is true as well. If I just work hard and don't believe any of it, right? Self righteousness, moral deism, then I'm still the main attraction. And so, true Christianity, a faith where we simply believe that ignites in obedience, Jesus is the main attraction. That's always a good gauge for where you are. How am I doing at my spiritual growth? Who's the main attraction to me? Am I wanting people to see me or am I wanting people to see Him? Now, as we transition this conversation to what Paul's gonna walk us through, he starts with this this calling to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. That's when we spend some time talking about walking by faith. No longer walk as the Gentiles do. So faith with obedience and obedience, so so faith with obedience then is, is the type of walking that Paul's getting at here. Now, in the letter, he's mentioned this several times in uh, at the beginning of this chapter, as a matter of fact, he begins with, Now walk in walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Okay? So which takes us all the way back to chapter two, where Paul talks about two different types of walking. in chapter two, Paul says this. Let me describe the way you used to walk. So in, in two one, he says, This you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So my former life. Right, you could describe it as this: I used to walk in sin. Okay, um, I used to live in sin. I had made a partnership with sin. I walked in it. Now, if you follow that um, from verse one and two through Ephesians chapter two all the way to verse ten, he calls us at the end to this. He says, "For we are his worksmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should." Walk in them. So your former life is that you walked in sin. You walked in it. You lived in it. Now you're walking in good works. So something about going from not saved to saved, one of the indications of that is now I walk in good works. I think one of the struggles in understanding our spiritual growth at times is the difference between walking in sin and being tempted by sin and maybe struggling and fighting against sin. There's a difference. There's a difference between, right? There's a difference between two dabbling in Christianity and walking with Christ the same way. And so what we're talking about here are the two polar opposites, walking away from Christ into sin, that there is a turning now to walking away from sin into Christ. Doesn't mean that there's still not a remaining struggle to be had, right, with sin, but I no longer walk in it. So he begins with these words, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. This is not a racial comment from Paul. He's already used the Gentiles as a metaphoric illustration of those who don't know God, okay? So he's not picking on the Gentiles. He's saying, he's using it as an illustration, those who don't know God, okay? And then he goes on to describe what he means by this in the futility of their what? Minds. So now my individual spiritual growth has something to do with what's going on up here. That's where we were last week. Our spiritual growth as a church, right, is fueled by what happens up here. Our knowledge of Jesus fuels our love for Jesus. So he says this no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. The word futility here could also translate vanity. Um, But it literally means what is devoid of truth and or value. And I would use the word and. Devoid of truth and value. It's vain. Walking with a futile mind. Devoid of truth. So my spiritual growth from the very beginning of this passage has something to do with the truth that is in my mind. Now he goes on to explain this a little further. Look at verse 18. They are, describing those who are walking in a futility of mind, they are darkened. Uh, that literally means to cover the darkness, okay? So it's not the absence of light as much as it is something being covered or shrouded away from the light. Cloud cover darkens the earth from the sun. It doesn't mean the sun's not still there, right? In the same way, it doesn't mean that truth isn't there. There's a, there's a darkening that happens, a, a veiling that, that happens. There's a darkening in their understanding, Okay, again, in the mind. Darkening in the understanding. And then this word alienated. So here is here's something I think we need to key in on, which means to be shut out from intimacy. Alienated. To be shut out from the inner workings of. And so if we look at how it's applied here, alienated from the life of God. So if I'm struggling in my intimacy with my, with my God, in my relationship with God. Paul is saying, what I need to be aware of is there's probably a darkening happening of my understanding. Now think about that. How do we normally react? Okay, I'm talking to those Christians who are like professional Christians, okay? You and I have been walking this journey for you know, 10, 20 years. We get to that point where things seem to stall out. What do we tend to do? We tend to work harder. We tend to, I need to become more faithful. I need to memorize more scripture. Now, we'll get to scripture, but the working of memorizing isn't what fuels us forward. It's the scripture itself, right? And so we tend to say, well, I need to work harder. I need to get up earlier to pray. I need to pray longer. This will fuel my relationship with God. I need to work harder. What am I doing? I'm engaging in obedience without faith, if I'm doing that, to try to restart my relationship with God. When actually what I need to do, according to Paul, is I need to stop And I need to recognize where my understanding of who Jesus is is becoming shrouded or darkened, where my understanding of him is fading or not correct. How do I do that? I open up the word. Now see, we're coming back to the word. But it's different. To open the word, thinking that if I memorize it, if I work hard enough at it, I will then become more in love with Jesus. Okay, that's works-based, as opposed to I'm opening it up because I love him and I can't see him right now. It's different. You see the difference? One puts the scripture somehow in this like, uh, it's almost like it's a genie in the bottle. If we rub it the right way, my spiritual journey will take off. And if we're not careful, we'll become idolaters of, of the word. It's not the written words on the page. It's Jesus himself, the word that we're after. Now this is the revelation that leads us there. It's the path. It's the journey. It's, it's us feeling like we're separated from Jesus in the woods and I need to do anything I can to get to him. This is the path I take to get there. There's a different, there's a different approach, isn't there? Now it's helpful to memorize scripture. Very helpful. But I would say this, if you're not going to meditate on it, you're probably not gonna get a full sense of what it's worth. Just to memorize is not enough. It's when we begin to meditate on what's actually there, what it's saying, what is God saying to me, that it begins to transform what's in here. I'm all about Bible drills and teaching our kids let's memorize the words of the Bible so that we can have some tools to help navigate it. But if that's all we do, we teach them an obedience without faith. We need to teach our kids to pursue Jesus because he's in here. Same is true for us adults, parents. So he says, the darkening of our understanding causes an alienation, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Again, what? Where's ignorance at? A lack of understanding here due to the hardness of heart. Now there's a sense of a callousness that happens over our heart. Verse 19 talks about the callous. In verse 19, it says, They have become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So let me just break that down, what Paul just said. Futility in the mind, a lack of truth up here. Futility in the mind will give way to a darkened understanding, A darkened understanding gives way to a callous or a hardness of the heart, which leads to an alienation from my intimacy with God, and then the end result is I begin giving myself up to impurity. Now, we have to think of it that way. If we find ourselves in this struggle with sin, giving ourselves up to impurity, and that's the only place we wage war, we will fail every time. Every time. You'll engage in an obedience based faith rather than a faith and based obedience when all you do is go after the impurity. I know where I'm impure. I know where I'm struggling with sin. I just want to go after that. Paul would say, no, 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 no. We need to start with what you know about Jesus. That's what's going to fuel your understanding. That's what's going to fuel the affections of your heart. That's what's going to fuel your intimate relationship with God that from there then you can wage war on impurity. Now, it's important as we move into this section to understand the process as such so we don't just read these words and go after the impurity. That's moral deism. And it will fail us every time because you will fail every time. And many of our more experienced Christians who've been fighting this battle for a longer time know that very well, and you're nodding your head at me. Yes, I will. If I just come to the altar and promise to do better... At this thing I'm struggling with, I know what's going to happen. What? I'm going to go back this week, and I'm going to go right back to it. So then we get to a place, follow me on this, where we say, I'm just not going to go to the altar anymore. Right? I'm not going to bring this before God anymore. I've done it too many times. I'm too embarrassed. I don't expect anything different to change. I'm just going to sit here now in my struggle and do nothing and Paul says, how about we do something, but let me invite you to start at the right place. It's the futility of your mind, the lack of truth in your understanding of who God is that's leading to this impure thinking, therefore impure living. Are you seeing that in the, in the text? Okay, so moving forward, Paul then begins to shift towards solution, towards how we get out of this in verse 20. He says, but... That is not the way you learned Christ. And then an interesting phrase. He uses this phrase twice in Ephesians. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught him. What I believe Paul is saying, he's realizing that it's been a while since he's been there. And he's realized the church has grown from 12 men to now a small congregation. And he doesn't want to assume that everybody heard the gospel correctly. So it's almost like he's speaking to everybody there. Some of you I know. Some of you don't. Those of you who I don't know, like those who I know, I know how you heard the gospel. I know how you were taught in it. Those who I've never met before, I'm assuming that you heard it the right way. So look at what he says. That's not the way you learned Christ. Where does learning happen? Here. It's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So for me to grow in Christ, there needs to be a teaching and a learning. There needs to be a hearing of what is true. It's why we do the adult Bible studies on Sunday mornings a week ahead of time and why we pull these things out in life application in life groups. We need to be taught. We need to learn. And if I just walk in on a Sunday and hear a message that may inspire me and then walk out the door and forget everything that I heard, Life change isn't going to happen. I might get inspired from time to time or feel guilty about my sin from time to time, but nothing is going to transform on the inside if I don't become a student of who Jesus is. It's not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you heard of him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Growing in Christ begins with the mind. The mind will navigate the heart. The heart will navigate your actions and your words. Now, in verse 22, then, he says this. To put off your old self. So here's the solution. Okay, how do I do this? Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. He's thinking the first part of Ephesians 2. Walking as a dead man. He's talking about how to put that off, that former manner of life. We put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Um, I think we, if we're not careful in the church, we have a tendency to just use this, 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 this expression here with young Christians and just say, stop doing it. Just put it off. Just quit doing it. It's the, uh, there's this... Uh, I don't know, it's like a Tonight Show or Late Night with uh, Bob Newhart, who you've seen the video, and it's like, I'm gonna solve all your problems in like two minutes or five minutes or whatever, and the person comes in and confides in him all the struggles, and he's like, okay, I got a solution for you. It's really simple. What's the solution? Stop it. Right? Just stop it. If you'll stop it, right, everything's better. Now, that, that counsel makes sense to us, right? In your struggle with sin, here, come here, come here, I got it right here, just stop it. Now, it's, it's easy for us in the church, especially those who maybe our sins are harder to see, to look at people whose sins are easier to see and say, just stop it. Do what I'm doing. Just stop it. I'm not struggling with, with the drugs. I'm not struggling with the pornography. I'm not, str- just stop it. Right? When we have sin that we're struggling with, it's just easier to hide. And that counsel wouldn't work for us. It doesn't, right? Just stop gossiping, just stop being envious. Just stop being prideful. Just stop it. So it's not just a just stop it command here when he says put it off. He's thinking of a process here that he's inviting us into so that we can grow in Christ. There's, uh, there's parallel teachings to this uh, in your New Testament. Paul in Colossians uh, talks about this. And then we'll look at what Peter has to say and James have to say as well about this same topic. So in Colossians, Paul says it this way. Starting in verse 5 of chapter 3, he says... Put to death, therefore. So instead of saying, just take it off, he starts with, put it to death. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Verse seven. In these, you too once what? Walked, we see it as a parallel teaching, you once walked in these, When you were living in them. There's a good description of what it means to walk in them. To live in them. Then he comes back to say, verse 8, But now you must put them all away. Okay, how do you do that? Put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So now we're saying, okay, Paul, we get it. We're with you now. How do we do that? How do we actively participate in putting off the old self? Is that something that Jesus just does for us and we wake up one day and no longer have the struggle of sin? Some of you, that's happened in certain areas of your life, right? There was a surrendering, there was a brokenness, there was a Jesus, take this away from me, I can't take it any longer. And then he did. Others of us, we understand the lamenting of Paul when he talks about the thorn in the flesh, this messenger from Satan. And Paul says, I begged Jesus to take this away, and he didn't. And said what? My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. I'm gonna leave you in this struggle. My grace is sufficient for you, for in your weakness you'll be made strong. So we know that sometimes that's, and I would say most oftentimes, that's God's response to us in our struggle with sin. There's a a process to participate in actively as he works on us. So here Paul says, put it to death. Now Peter and James are gonna weigh in on the conversation. So from Peter, not a whole lot of help, but a little bit of help. If you go to 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse one, he says, so put away, does that sound familiar? All malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and evil and all slander. So again, saying the same thing, just put it away. Be done with it. Verse two, like, Newborn what? Infants. Wow, that's enlightening to me. Though I'm 37 years old and I tend to feel like an adult, in many ways I'm spiritually immature. This is written to adults. Spiritual infants who long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So I would say this our, our, the, under, the, the process for participating and taking off the old self begins in a right understanding of where we are spiritually. It is a right thing to realize your spiritual immaturity. Though your physical body may give off the vibe that you've got it together, there's a spiritual you on the inside that may in fact still be an infant or a toddler. Okay? Now, why does that, how does that help? Okay, so I I don't know how many of you still have kids in the home, but there are certain things that you don't expect a toddler to be able to do. So therefore, the toddler needs then the good parent to come do that for them or help them and assist them in that. I think that's helpful for us. It keeps us from this prideful mentality of I've got this, I got this, I got it. I read a verse, you know, I, I memorized this in VVS. I've got this, okay? A sense of no, I'm actually... I'm actually young in my faith. I need nourishment. I need leadership. I need somebody to grow me as a disciple. I need that. Instead of this, I got this mentality, put on the facade and act more mature than we actually are. If we could understand ourselves as young in the faith, we might be more inclined to somebody actually helping us grow. You need spiritual leadership. You do. And if we can understand that, then we begin to crave it. Second thing that Peter's going to say, and this is uh, in 2 Peter chapter 2, he actually quotes a proverb that I just wanted to throw in here for fun. But it illustrates our struggle with sin. He wants us to see our struggle with sin vividly. So he, in, uh, in 2 Peter 2, Peter quotes uh, a proverb and so in chapter two, verse 22, he says, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, talking about a pig, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. He's talking about being cleansed from sin and returning back to it. And so if we, in our infancy in Christ, our need to be nourished, to be parented, if you will, to be led in our faith, our need, if we're in that place, and we don't open ourselves up humbly to grow, what's gonna happen is, just like my toddler, like it's not enough for, for my, uh, my, my two-year-old to touch the stove and know it's hot. He's, got, he's hard-headed, like a lot of us. He's gonna do it again in a few months. He's gonna forget the lesson that he learned. And like a, and so what, what, what's being said here is like a dog returns to his vomit. You want something, you want a gross illustration of what it's like to return to your sin? Stay immature in your spiritual growth, and you will return to your sin. The dead man, like a dog returns to his vomit, or a sow, like a pig, you wash it clean, returns right back to the slop in the mire. So Peter wants us to see vividly our spiritual growth, and I think that helps us, right? It helps us kind of tear down some walls. and go, Okay, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to raise my hand and say, I don't understand that. We wish our kids would do that more, don't we? And so why wouldn't we? when we do the same in our spiritual growth, to place ourselves in a position to be taught and coached and mentored and poured into. So when we get to James, I love James. James gets a bad rap. We need to spend a whole year in James. James is beautiful. He tends to be the guy who doesn't doesn't mess around, cuts to the chase, get busy for God. Um, But he doesn't do it void of the gospel. But he talks a lot about works. Faith without works is dead. So here's something that James says in chapter one, early on in his letter. He says, Therefore, put away, does that sound familiar? So he's saying the same thing Paul and Peter said put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness. There's a passive thing, we're receiving something. Receive with meekness the what? The implanted word. So James wants you to know that the word has a lot to do with your ability to put off the things of this world, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Um, This is how Jesus himself does spiritual battle with the word, right here. This is what we're talking about, the word, right here. Now, again, we can get cheesy with it. Go, The word is my sword, and we can carry it around like a good luck charm, put it on the dash of our car, set it on the table, we carry it everywhere we go, but if we don't open it in pursuit of Jesus, it does nothing for us. It has to be implanted, not just memorized, but truly embedded in who we are, meditated on, savored. One of our former pastors here at Solid Rock used to say, marinated by it, sitting in it, soaking it in. But then James will bring the topic back up again in chapter 4. In verse 7, he says this, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That's an active thing. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. So there's an active part for you in that spiritual warfare as well. Is your your role to go into the kingdom of darkness and and slay Satan? No. Who gets to slay Satan? Jesus does. What's your job and my job? Resist. Look at what Satan does when we we resist. We stand firm is what Paul is going to say in a couple of chapters. When we resist the devil, he does what? Flees from us. But is that where the command stops here? Is that all we need to grow spiritually? Nope. Resist the devil, he will flee. Verse eight, though, draw near to God, and he will what? Draw near to you. How do we make Satan go away and God come closer? We resist, resist, and we draw near to God. How do we draw near? By replacing the futility of our minds with what's true. And what is true will guide and navigate the affection of the heart. What the heart longs for, your mouth will speak and your body will do. We'll end today in Hebrews chapter 12. In the first few verses of chapter 12. Um, Beautiful work of scripture, Hebrews is. A lot of commentary on the Old Testament. But around chapter 11, there's a transition into a lot of commentary on the New Testament. Okay, and so we're past that transition. We're in chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews. The first few verses here, we'll probably make it through one and two, give us some insight into this putting off of the old self, this putting to death the old self and replacing futility with knowledge of truth. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, just went through the hall of faith, these men and women of the Old Testament who pleased God with their faith and were considered righteous because they believed God in a way that led to actions. So he just commended all these men and women. Now he says, since we're surrounded by that cloud of witnesses, these people who walk by faith, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great, so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also... Here's the first thing, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So even though we're not walking and living in sin, there's still this tendency, this proneness that we just sang about for sin to entangle us, to attach itself to us. It's like walking through the woods and those little clingy plants. If you're any outdoorsman, you know what I'm talking about. Especially like here in another month when everything gets green, there's like Velcro, they just stick to you. That's how sin is. We brush up against it. We continue in our struggle with it. It clings to us. He says, lay aside, lay aside every way and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So how do we resist? How do we do this? How do we resist the devil? The first thing is this by laying aside the sin that so easily entangles. What do you mean? Putting it to death. How do we, when we think of death, oftentimes we think passively, it's something that may happen to us, but here we're called to activity of putting something to death. Romans 13, I think, gives us some insight. Verse 13 and 14 says, let us know, let us walk properly, As in the daytime, same topic, not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify his desires. I think that's what Paul and James and Peter are getting at here. When you make provisions for something, you're feeding it. You've probably heard like the dog's illustration, like there's a black dog and a white dog, whichever one I feed is going to thrive Maybe that metaphor kind of works here, but but here's the thing. When I make provisions for sin, guess what it does? It thrives around me. There's an active part in my spiritual growth to no longer make provisions. Now, what happens if I don't make provisions for it? It starves to death. So how do we lay it aside? We quit proactively feeding it. It's one-on-one counseling right here. What are you doing in your life that's feeding the sin, we need to cut off that lifeline, whatever it is. If it's it's the computer in the house, that's what we need to do. If it's your route to work or home from work that takes you by that place, we need to sever the life source. Now, is that alone going to cause you to grow? No, it's not the end of it, but start there. Quit feeding and making provision for the sin so it can grow up around you and entangle you. It's the first thing. The second thing is that he says here is we resist by running with endurance the race that's set before us. What are you talking about here? More physical activity? That's pretty popular in our culture right now. Um, I like wearing the running shoes so everybody thinks I'm a runner. I don't run. I just like for people to think that I'm a runner. A lot of people in our culture who do run. It's not a call to physical exercise, however, though. It's a call to be on the mission that Jesus has called us to. That's the race set before us. Did you know that, Church? We are called to a race together to follow hard after Jesus to make disciples of the ends of the earth. How do you put to death the former life? Quit feeding, quit feeding the sin. Get involved in the mission. So, if I go to the Philippines, I won't struggle with sin anymore. It's not what I said, that's that's works based. Get involved in the mission. Everyday living. Do you truly, do you truly love Jesus? Let me ask you this: Are you married? Do you truly love your spouse? Do you want people to know that you're married? I sure hope so, and so does your spouse. If you belong to Jesus, He wants you to make that known. That's what it means to be on the mission for Him. In every conversation, we, we just—I was—we pr- were praying this morning. In every conversation, God, help us to, to see the ordination that, you, that you've ordained it. We're not just talking about mission trips that are on the calendar and we put deposit. We're talking about going through the drive through or standing in line or pumping gas or walking past a person you know, on your way into the store. We're talking about the person in your cubicle. We're talking about the people who work for you and who work over you. Everybody around you is your mission. That's the race you're called to run. You want to put to death the former self? Get involved in, the, in what the new self is supposed to be doing. That's your active part. Get on mission. And this last thing he says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We resist by looking to Jesus, and I don't want to say that ambiguously. Here's what I think specifically we need to hear from here. One, by setting our mind on him. How do you set your mind on Jesus. Let me ask you this. How do you set your mind on other things? How do you set your mind on your hobbies? You invest into it. You make provision for it to happen. You do it. You research it. You study it. Right? That's how you make provision for your hobby. How do you make provision for your earthly relationships? You set aside time. You invest into it. You think about it. You study the person. Right? And then you then you respond. How do you look to Jesus? You set aside time. You invest resources into it. So, like, um, what what does that mean? Invest resources into it. Okay. So, um, do you have do you have a copy of God's Word that you is in a, is in a translation that you can understand, a responsible translation that you can understand, or are, are you still in a translation? That has a whole lot of these and thous, and you have no idea what it's saying. Okay? Now, I'm talking about responsible translations. I'm not saying just grab anything, but I am saying this if you can't understand cognitively what what it's saying, it's not gonna cognitively transform your thinking of Jesus. You're tripping over the these and thous, and you can't get to the heart of it. Do you have a copy of God's word that you can understand? If you don't, we need to know about that as a church, and we need to help you not gonna tell you what translation to go get, but we would be glad to give you a list of some to go look at. Most Christian bookstores have them available. You can go sit down in a little seating area and just read through some verses. If you want some help on finding a responsible translation of God's word, okay, here's the thing too. If you can't afford it, we're gonna figure out how to help you afford it. We'll and help invest resources into it. That's what I mean. So don't go, don't go say, well, um, sorry I couldn't, I can't meet with you on Friday. I've got a, a tea time, but I can't afford a Bible. Okay? That's not investing your resources into it. But if you're saying, if I go buy a Bible, my family can't eat dinner, come talk to me and we'll help you get, get the Bible. Being here on Sunday mornings is investing, right? Showing up, being involved in Bible studies and life groups. Those are ways you can invest and say, this is important to me, I'm gonna set my mind on Jesus. Setting your affections to Jesus. Now this is maybe even a little bit more difficult because it requires a, a bit of honesty, we like to say we love things that we don't love and we like to say we don't love things that we actually do. Let me say that again. We like to say we love things that we actually don't love and we, and we like to say we don't love things that we actually do love. In your ongoing struggle with sin, there's probably still some affection there for something. So how do we set our affections to Jesus? It takes a lot of inventory. I believe it takes walking with a brother and sister in Christ who will be honest with us and say, listen, I know you say this, but here's what's coming out of your life. It looks like your longing is for this and you say it's not, right? We, we, we say it this way. We, um, You'll make time for the things you love that are important to you, right? At some level, that's true. We need somebody to help, help us take inventory in that, to reassess our, our affections and, and, and turn those and shift those towards Jesus. How... What's another way you can do it by yourself? I'll tell you a beautiful way. You can shift your affections towards Jesus. Um, go read the Gospels. Go read the story of Jesus coming to earth to walk among us, heal our infirmities, to feel our pain, to experience our suffering, to cry our tears, to die our death. And God, I believe, God, if you'll open up your heart and truly read it and allow it to read you, your affections will, will realign to Jesus. And the last thing is this, Um, I'm going to say it this way, setting the GPS trajectory of your life to Jesus. Hopefully that wording doesn't trip you up. I heard somebody say it this morning in this room. Two believers were talking, and I didn't hear the, the, the previous conversation, but it ended with this, something along these lines, yes, but when I leave here, I'm going somewhere better. Okay, it was something along those lines. Um, that conversation, the GPS coordinates were on finally seeing Jesus face to face. Now, that should bear some influence on how our life plays out here. We say it. If we knew this was the last day or tomorrow was the last day, I'd live differently. When our GPS coordinates of our life are set on Jesus and Jesus alone. I'm not just talking heaven, okay? You mean going to heaven and seeing Jesus? No, no. Jesus. Like Paul said, I long to see him face-to-face, finally. That's the GPS coordinates of my life. Then guess what happens quickly? I begin to lay aside anything that is keeping me from getting to that. Now, can we transform ourselves? No. God does the, the active work on our hearts to transform us by implanting a word of truth in us his holy spirit stirring and conviction and transformation but can we participate with that yes we can we can by putting to death laying aside repositioning our affections and setting our gps on jesus fixing our eyes on jesus is what this author says the author and perfecter of our faith fix your gaze on him And you'll find growth and victory in your spiritual struggles. Now we're going to come back next week and pick it up with verse 24. And we're going to talk some more about how we can participate in our spiritual growth. But you understand we're talking about how how we, if you're here today and you're a Christian, you've gone from no hope, living in sin, and, and not saved to saved... I hope that if you're a believer, I hope that you've been baptized, not for any kind of works-based reasons because there's something beautiful and glorious about coming publicly before a group of people and saying, I believe in him, I've trusted him. That's what baptism does, a public declaration. And then I hope that you are beginning to get involved in the community that is the church on some level. We realize that that doesn't just happen without planning. And we we know that's a struggle here at Solid Rock. Elders, leadership team, and staff are working right now diligently behind the scenes working on a structure that will allow everybody to get involved in the community that is the church. We we realize it takes some activity on your part. However, fill out your Connect card. There's a practical way uh, that you can participate in that. I wanna get involved. I I want more information about this or that. So that you can continue this growth process towards Jesus. And here's what's happening to you. You're, you are becoming more and more transformed into the image of Jesus day by day, glory by glory, struggle by struggle, victory by victory. That's our goal. It's what it's what Paul said earlier in the chapter. That's our that's our standard of maturity, the fullness of Jesus. So here's what I want to end today. Just some questions for you to think about as we pray. What from the old you do you need to lay aside today? What needs to be starved to death? What did you realize today? You know what, I'm feeding this. I'm making provisions for this sin. In what, day, in what ways do you need to return to the course that God has called you, the race, the mission? Maybe God has said something to you at a previous time that you have not acted upon or been obedient to or you did for a season and left. Okay. In what ways do you need to return to the course that God has called you to? And in what areas of your life do you need to set your mind to Jesus, your affections to Jesus, or maybe it's just that the the GPS coordinates are completely wrong. I'm gonna leave you with those questions today. I'm gonna pray for us as the worship team comes back up and uh, and we'll end here, but we're not done. Like this is the part where now, the truth has been implanted in us, now we respond. Prayer partners will be down at the front. Prayer and counseling rooms will be open. Um, Let's, Stand and sing if that's what God is doing. Stay seated if you wanna do that. But let's respond now to the truth that God has given us this morning. Let's pray together. Um, Father, thank you for the glorious truth that at times is painful, but always delivers life. And God, sometimes we, we don't open the Bible because we're lazy. Sometimes we don't open the Bible because we don't maybe want to. But the heart of the matter is, God, what do we believe? Because sometimes we don't open it because we don't believe it. And so this morning, rather than just becoming harder workers, could you, God, increase our faith? Would you stir up our faith this morning? That our recommitment to the scriptures will be a longing to see Jesus and a belief that we'll find him there. And not just a just a Bible memorization activity. Today, could we reassess our journey and recommit ourselves to the path that you called us to, this beautiful mission of making disciples of all the nations. And again, not to impress you or to perform for you, but because on that path, we find you. God, for anybody who doesn't have a relationship with you today, that they would begin by simply believing in Jesus. That Jesus, you are the son of the living God and you have died for their sins. And you give new life at the moment of belief. Jesus, all these things we pray in your powerful name. Now, meet us where we are as we respond.